and welcome to FagGab. This is the podcast for the International Journal of Feminist Approaches to Bioethics, brought to you by Fab Network. My name is Catherine McKay, and today I'm joined by Claire Moore from the Bioethics Department at the National Institutes of Health in the United States. And we're discussing her paper, Objection or Obstacle, Applying Amartya Sen's Capability Approach to the Conscientious Refusal of Emergency Contraception. Hello, Claire. Hi. Thanks so much for being here. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. So um, to get us started, could you give our listeners the elevator pitch for this paper? Absolutely. This might be a, a long elevator ride. I'll try to keep it uh, brief. Obviously, the title itself is a mouthful. Um, I'd also like to just note quickly that all of what I say is my own, and none of this reflects the position of the NIH or U.S. government. Yeah, so this is a paper that I actually started writing um, just as I was completing my undergraduate degree, and I've since still been thinking about it, but it's not something that I've currently been working on um, in my current capacity as a NIH fellow. Um, Noted. So, <laughs> yes, <laughs> in this paper, I basically apply one specific theory of equality, which is Amartya Sen's capabilities approach to the specific issue of conscientious refusal to emergency contraception. Um, and in doing so, I sort of aim to highlight one potential strategy for how we might argue for a prohibition against these conscientious refusal policies that can hinder the over-the-counter sale of emergency contraception pills, at least in the U.S. context. Um, these policies exist in at least 14 U.S. states using things like broadly worded conscience clauses that end up often extending to pharmacists and pharmacy clerks who are working in non-clinical settings, right, who might just be working at, um, you know, a, a, a Walgreens or, or Walmart pharmacy. Um, and they inevitably sort of enable um, pharmacists and clerks to refuse to sell something over the counter like Plan B one step based on their religious or moral convictions. Um, and of course, this is a, a hot debate in bioethics outside of this particular issue about emergency contraception. Many bioethicists um, have done a ton of work on conscientious objection and conscientious refusal. Um, so the sort of spirit of this paper is that SENS Capabilities Framework, I think, has a lot of useful import in this debate, um, especially in helping us sort of rank our different priorities, right? Because many bioethicists um, agree and argue that we have a right to things like bodily autonomy or to reproductive choice. And those are really important to a lot of different arguments in bioethics. But similarly, a lot of bioethicists also agree that we have a right to enjoy religious expression and freedom from religious persecution. So seemingly these sort of two things, what Sen would call a capability, these two different capabilities um, are at odds, which is, um, of course, very familiar in many debates about reproductive health care. So essentially, I try and argue that conscientious refusal to emergency contraception um, can create a very burdensome inequality for people wishing to prevent pregnancy, given the sort of background of historical injustices um, that are so apparent in the US uh, with respect to reproductive health care access. And so I argue that that fact alone ought to sort of elevate its importance when we weigh these competing capabilities. So what motivated you to, to write this paper? Yeah, that's a good question. I was motivated um, for a number of reasons. Um, first, I just sort of really got interested in sense capability approach during an undergraduate philosophy course on egalitarian theory. I think the reason it stuck out to me is because 
it seems to sort of inherently be able to assess structures of power and of injustice, um, which I don't think are necessarily baked into all um, theories of equality in the political philosophy literature. Um, and also I was motivated because this seems like a really interesting context, right? Like the over-the-counter sale of emergency contraception, like bioethicists rightfully spend a lot of time thinking about the duties of clinicians and sort of medical settings, clinical research settings, and, and so on. Um, but I think maybe less attention is paid to these sorts of um, more sort of everyday um, uh, issues, like what happens when someone goes into their local grocery store and tries to buy um, something like an emergency contraceptive pill over the counter. Um, I think that is also a setting that is like rife with a lot of these ethical issues, but it's not necessarily um, a setting that gets a, a large amount of attention. Um, and, and also I grew up in sort of the American South. And so I sort of firsthand witnessed um, barriers to healthcare access broadly. And so it's something very personal to me and I think is always going to inform my, my scholarship in bioethics. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel like the paper um, is framed by some really important empirical facts about healthcare access, but also just other access to other goods that might count as capabilities within the United States for people who um, live, especially rurally, I think, is one of the sort of focuses in the paper. Absolutely. Yeah, I think um, often um, a lot of people, at least when they think about conscientious refusal policies, um, often in these policies, it's baked in that you know, you have a, an obligation as a clinician if you do refuse to refer someone elsewhere. Um, and I think that's great that that's sort of baked into these policies. But as you note, I point out in the paper that it's just sort of an empirical fact that if you live in an area um, that doesn't have a, a lot of uh, resources and you don't have much access to an abundance of healthcare resources, then that referral doesn't really do too much for you if you don't have anywhere else to be referred to. I have a question for you about the capabilities, but I think first, um, I wondered if you wanted to maybe give a highlight of some of the main points of your argument. Yeah, sure. Um, I'll, I'll try my best. <laughs> so basically the main argument of the paper is that if we were to employ this capabilities framework to tease out what we think as a collective society, what the most important functionings are that people should all be able to reach, such a framework could prioritize bodily autonomy over religious expression via conscientious refusal. So I get there by basically pointing out that I think reproductive or bodily autonomy is what Sen calls a fundamental capability. Um, and I think that's true because put really simply, being pregnant and, and giving birth to one or more children can seriously impact how your life goes, right? Like I'm not yet a parent, but I know from my parents and many others that you know, even once you have kids, your your life is sort of changed. Um, but that's also if you don't decide to then parent the child you give birth to, that still has a, a direct impact um, on how your life progresses moving forward. Um, and I'd like to note that, of course, expressing your religion impacts how your life goes as well, often in a really fundamental way. It could even impact how your life goes after you pass on, right? But I argue that it seems that you can express your religion 
in all sorts of ways throughout your life, right? Like you can choose to live a robustly or devoutly religious lifestyle um, without conscientious refusal to emergency contraception being legal, right? Since there are tons of avenues you can express your religion through, maybe you don't get to in that one transaction at work that day. Um, but I think it's sort of obvious that uh, emergency contraception is like a time sensitive matter. You only have a couple of uh, hours or sometimes days for it to be effective. Um, and so that's a very small window of opportunity that has a huge potential impact on your life. Um, and, and moreover, pregnancy and having kids also has a huge um, implication for your health, right? Like so many people experience all sorts of health complications due to pregnancy or, or having children. And in the spirit of the paper as a whole, we know that there are huge disparities in those outcomes and health impacts. Um, we know that black women especially face such higher rates of maternal mortality and, and so many um, other um, uh, health impacts. So, so given that, it seems that it's sort of fundamental in a sense that maybe religious expression in this context is not. Yeah, it's actually, it's always a stunning statistic to me that African-American, Alaska Native and um, American Indian women have like a three times higher rate of serious yeah. complications in pregnancy. And it's nothing to do with biology. It has everything to do with access and pre-existing inequalities. And it's just mind boggling. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It, it totally is. And it's like, it, it seems like it's so mind boggling. How could we ignore, you know, statistics like that when we, when we, you know, muse about policies on, on emergency contraception and, and whether they should exist and in what ways. And so that is sort of, also like the motivation for this paper is like, how can we have a historically informed view on these policies? I think if we look at the history of reproductive inequality and these current disparities that happen as a result, like it's clear that certain people will be hugely impacted and, and we ought to prevent that. We ought to take that into account and, and not have those disparities exacerbated further. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about the capabilities because, um, it's possible that the listeners haven't heard too much about them before. Um, and you're using Amartya Sen's framework roughly. Um, yeah. And so I wondered if you could say a little bit about his framework of capabilities. And then I just wanted to ask you a couple of questions about sort of how you've used it. So I'll let you do yeah. the intro first. Sure. Yeah. So I'll try to keep this brief as well. I don't want to be too pedantic, but I think it is really helpful in understanding the capabilities approach to contrast it with maybe other theories of equality. So like really roughly, a lot of people are like, yeah, we need equality. We should have a theory of, of how to make people equal. But the task of many political philosophers has been, okay, if we say that we want equality broadly among human agents, what does that mean? What are we actually making equal between people? So there's lots of different theories um, that discuss just that point. What are we going to make equal if we agree that we want equality? Um, so some people say that we should make people's access to resources equal. So everyone should have roughly the same amount of stuff or the same kind of stuff. Um, or other people say, well, we can all have different life situations and different stuff, but really what should be made equal is people's well-being. So if everyone's doing pretty good, 
Um, and that can be achieved in a number of ways. Um, and so that's like a welfare theory of, of equality. And the first one is a, a resources theory of equality. So Sen's theory is sort of in contrast to those um, in that he doesn't think of equality as being something about these primary goods or resources or about uh, a sort of end goal state, like, well, at the end of the day, everyone should you know, be doing pretty good. He thinks throughout life, throughout a whole lifetime, there are all of these different states that we can constantly achieve. And that sort of in a complex way, a government's responsibility is to ensure that at least people have roughly the same ability to reach these states across their lifetime. So different capabilities could be like the state of being educated, the state of feeling or, or being housed. Um, so there's sort of these, these complex states that are sometimes hard to define, but I think it's like a really compelling approach because it's not necessarily thinking about equality as something that happens at one point in time, but something that is, you know, often uh, aimed to, to be achieved um, over a lifetime and through these different states and not just saying, well, people should have the same stuff or people should feel or be doing about the same. Right. I think that was a great overview. Okay, great. <laughs> <laughs> so um, Sen's got one sort of capabilities um, approach theory. Martha Nussbaum has another. They were yes. developed in conjunction, yes. kind of. Yes. <laughs> um, and on each of those, although um, Sen has really hesitated to give us any kind of list, he often gives examples. Nussbaum, on the other hand, has sort of um, bitten the bullet, let's say, and she's actually uh, provided a rough list of sort of the central capabilities. I think she's got 10 or something like that, but it's not like it's a complete list or anything like that. However, my question for you is um, usually these capabilities are taken to be really quite broad categories of of life. Like you've just said, like they're kind of, they're these things that we want to do. They're over a whole lifetime. So they're not really prescriptive. And they're also not, um, you know, a capability is something other than a preference. And it's something other than something that we value, because we might value all kinds of things, but they might not be capabilities. So like I might value um, owning my own vehicle, that doesn't make that a capability. Um, rather, what a capability is, is the ability to move um, freely or perhaps, you know, to be able to live within a reasonable distance of my work or something maybe like that. So I wanted to ask you about basically like splitting things into capabilities and not capabilities, because I think this is relevant for your paper. You know, we're thinking about expression of religious belief, which is definitely a big, broad capability. And I think that reproductive autonomy falls into capability as well. But then does each little, you know, how do we figure out which, how each little bit of what we value and what we prefer and how we act in life interacts with these broad capabilities? Yeah, you're hitting me with the hard questions, Catherine. <laughs> that's a really good one. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, that's so, that's so great because this is something that I thought so much about when I, when I wrote this paper. It, that question definitely sort of, I think, has informed my argument, right? That like, it seems that certain actions have more of a direct link 
to the the achievement of a capability than others, right? But like you said, it's really murky water, and it's it's hard to 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 define clearly. But going back to what I sort of said earlier, I think like the ability to obtain an emergency contraceptive has a pretty direct link to your reproductive autonomy more broadly. Because if you don't have access to that and you really don't want to have a future pregnancy, then you now are in a position where, you know, you may seek an abortion and then you may face further difficulties or there's like, there's some key checkpoints in other words, like as if, if pregnancy is something that um, is part of bodily autonomy, which I think it's a really important part of bodily autonomy. Um, but on the flip side, yeah, like what sorts of micro actions do people take every day to achieve religious expression? That's really hard to say. Um, and I'm not sure, but I'm pretty convinced that not always expressing your religious views in the workplace is one of those really important ones for religious expression. Um, but of course, some may disagree. And then I would love to read their paper in response to mine. Yeah, absolutely. I, and, I, and I only ask you that because I think this is such an interesting and quite murky area, as you put it, yeah. to figure out sort of like how, yeah, because each capability is quite a broad category. There's innumerable ways that they could be fulfilled or or perhaps not fulfilled. So it seems quite uh, complicated. Yeah, 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 definitely. And Sen like points that out, which I really appreciate, which is that these capabilities are so often competing with one another and are at odds. Um, so it is, it's just, it's a very difficult question. And, and like you mentioned too, Nussbaum is like, well, you know, I'm just going to theorize about the top 10. Um, whereas Sen is like, yeah, these are often at odds and this is murky water and, you know, it's up to you all to figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. So did you face any specific um, challenges when you were writing the paper? Definitely. I, I really appreciate this question because I, some other ones I, I thought more uh, deeply about, and this one came to me immediately because it was like the hardest part in writing this paper um, was this challenge that I think many people encounter um, in bioethics or, or philosophical scholarship, which is that Often someone can adopt the same framework as you, operate under all the same assumptions, take all of your premises to be true, and yet flip it on you and disagree. And I think that is very possible with my paper. And so that's the objection that I outline. It's very possible that someone could be, you know, committed to the capabilities approach to equality agree that there are these two competing capabilities of reproductive autonomy and religious expression, and then conclude that religious expression ought to take precedence and that we ought to allow for conscientious refusal to emergency contraception sales. Um, I think that's a very compelling um, objection. And it's very, it's always very tricky, I think, to approach objections like that um, as sort of a junior academic myself. Um, and so that's all to say that's always a challenge, but I think it's also a really exciting one because you really have to, you know, be strategic and addressing objections of that kind. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think in the paper, you note that this objection is, you know, quite compelling and quite astute. 
but um it seems like it's your answer kind of comes down to the time sensitiveness of emergency contraception versus the ability to um express your religious commitments over a lifetime is that right yeah yeah that's yeah. certainly a huge a huge part of my response it's it's interesting too as like a, a burgeoning bioethicist sometimes i'm scratching my head all the time about how to you know think through a really complex ethical issue and I really do think in this case that these pragmatic concerns are really relevant to this mm -hmm. to this debate. And so I do note that just really importantly, emergency contraception access um, is a time sensitive matter and people only have so much time. And I think that should really be considered, whereas, you know, you may express your religion all throughout your life. Of course, you may face many barriers in doing so, depending on what religious beliefs you hold. Um, but I do think something like practical in that sense is relevant here. Um, and also, again, just thinking about also what we've been talking about at the beginning in terms of a historically informed bioethics and thinking about like the history of health disparities in the U.S. and reproductive health care access inequities. I think that also is sort of how I would address the objection that like these two are totally on par and religious expression is actually more important. It should be more fundamental. It's like, well, I don't think if we do like a, a power analysis of who has the most to gain and who has the most to lose, I would argue that there's, of course, a huge population of people who are historically marginalized and who like literally face um, so many more health complications and, and poor health outcomes if we allow for such policies. Um, whereas I don't think certain religious beliefs in the U.S. of this kind are being you know, systemically persecuted um, mm. on that level. Mm. You might actually think that the fullest expression of such a religious belief would be much more concerned about those inequalities, um, yeah. those sort of original background inequalities than the, the point of sale transaction, although mm -hmm. still important. Sure. No, that's a really great point. I didn't even necessarily think about that, but I, I absolutely think you're right that you can then <laughs> you can take their position and then use it so that's that's the perfect strategy right? <laughs> yeah. um so we're coming towards the end of the of our conversation um what is the primary takeaway message that you would like people to leave with yeah i had to really think about this um i guess my primary takeaway message is that I think bioethicists in particular, um, many of us still have a long way to go in taking seriously the fact that our work doesn't exist in a vacuum free of historical context. Um, and so I've sort of been harping on that this whole podcast now, but I just think it's really important. And especially in the spirit of being on a feminist bioethics podcast, um, I, yeah, I just, I really would like to emphasize that thinking through these issues that involve really classical debates on the surface about autonomy and obligations and the limits of autonomy and people's preferences, you know, like I said, are so often entrenched in like a way deeper historical narrative. And I think it's part of like being a responsible bioethicist to note that kind of historical context. And in this case, noting that reproductive health care, especially for women of color, poor women of color, women in rural areas, et cetera, 
have faced such a lack of, of access. And I think that is something that should inform this debate directly, how we think about it and how we argue about it. Um, and similarly, I think that applies to all sorts of issues in bioethics. Well, thanks so much for speaking with me, Claire. Yeah, thank you so much, Catherine. It's been so fun. Agreed. <laughs> and thank you everyone for listening to this episode of FabGab. You can find Claire's paper linked in this episode's notes along with the transcript. FabGab is hosted and produced by me, Catherine McKay. You can find our other episodes on Spotify, Radio Public, or wherever you get your podcasts of quality. Thanks again for listening. Bye.